So, like Jay said, we are in the season of Easter. Easter's not a day, it's a season. It goes on for seven weeks, and this is week three. It's another Sunday where we're gathering with Christians around the world to celebrate the death of death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were with us on Easter Sunday, you may remember that I preached a slightly unusual Easter sermon, and I spoke to us about Revelation, and I defined Revelation for us as this complex of ways in which God has revealed his character to us. And I made a point of saying that in Christianity, we don't check our brains at the door. Faith doesn't bleach reason, I said. It saturates it. Faith doesn't destroy our ability to reflect on the world. It perfects it. And I did all of this to underscore how staggering it is when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that without the resurrection, Christians don't have anything worth saying. Lose the resurrection, lose the gospel. Do you remember that? Well, I think that that sermon left an important thread dangling. So this morning, I want to return to our reflection on the resurrection so that we can deal with some of that unfinished business. Okay, so what's the unfinished business? Well, I said no resurrection, no gospel. The resurrection is absolutely of the essence of the Christian faith. But then I didn't bother to prove it to you. I simply claimed that the resurrection is a matter of the historical record, and then I moved on. And because I'm aware that uh, some of you are only sticking your toes in the water here, I realize that not everybody who's joining us this morning would identify as a Christian. I realize that some of you may have felt a little ignored, maybe even a little bit put off, that I didn't spend more time trying to persuade you of the resurrection's historicity or plausibility. And I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not going to do it either this morning. You see, even if I were to convince you that you should want the resurrection to be true, and even if I were to convince you that you've every reason to believe it did actually occur, some of you would still doubt. Not because you wouldn't want it to be true. Every one of us is facing the grave and has every reason to want it to be true. And not because you wouldn't grasp the evidence once it was laid out for you simply because you're certain that a person just doesn't rise from the dead. You have what we call an a priori commitment to believing that things like that just don't happen in a world like this. Gare Jones is an Anglican pastor out in L.A., used to minister at a church in North Carolina, and I once heard Gare tell a story that has stuck with me. Before he became a pastor, Gare trained as a corporate lawyer in England. And during his training, one of his professors set up a mock trial. The goal? To establish or to refute the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus from the perspective of the modern courtroom. Not from a faith perspective, but within the setting and by the rules and canons of a modern secular courtroom. Well, the mock trial begins. I think Garrett at this point was still convinced that the resurrection was implausible. You see, he's sharing this story as part of his testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus. So at the time, he expected, as you might, that this judge, after hearing all the evidence, would laugh down the suggestion of the resurrection. 
But the judge doesn't laugh it down. In fact, to Gare's surprise, the judge found in favor of the resurrection. In the eyes of a secular court, the judge said, the evidence was or should be overwhelming. The historic Christian claim of the physical resurrection of Jesus rests on compelling historical evidence. If we'll just take uh, the time and put the elbow grease that any uh, historical inquiry requires into actually dealing with the evidence. But look, the historicity of the resurrection wasn't Gare's point. And I don't share the story in order to make the point either. Gare went on. You see, this judge, having just affirmed the plausibility of the resurrection, then quickly assured his students that he did not, in fact, believe it could really have happened. Why not? Because evidence or not, the judge had made his mind up. Things like that just don't happen in a world like this. It is, as everyone knows, implausible. You see, if at the end of the day, you're convinced that the resurrection's implausible, no amount of evidence is going to convince you otherwise. You can have the created world stretched out before you, all the works of the hands of God, the moon and the stars which he has made, the birds of the field, the, the creatures of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, everything that passes along the paths of the sea. You can have the historical record stretched out before you. News of an empty tomb delivered by women in a day when women were considered unreliable witnesses to people who soon after embraced death to bear witness to the fact that they physically encountered the risen one of whom the women spoke. You can be up to your shoulders in compelling evidence and yet no closer to Jesus. As Tolkien put it in The Hobbit, at the end of your journey, but as far as ever from the end of your quest. Now, I'm not just giving you a hard time if you're a skeptical person. You see, I can be perfectly open to the idea of God. I can believe that miracles occur, that there exists this spiritual reality above nature that's pressing in on our world and sustaining nature in existence. That's all well and good. I can have all the data in the world. I may even believe in God. But when it comes to what Christianity calls knowing God, something is still missing. Even if you have belief in God and all the data in the world, something is missing. The sun is in the sky, shining over creation. You've got God. You've got all the data. But what do you need in order to see? You need eyes to see. I believe in Christianity, wrote C.S. Lewis, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What do you need to know God? Not just the sun in the sky, not just a bare belief in God, and not just the vista of creation bathed in sunlight, not just an acceptance of God's existence or even of the event of the resurrection as a historical fact. No, something needs to happen in you. The word who shines in the world must also make his light shine in your heart. That's why, according to the Bible, to know God, a person must be 
illuminated. Underline that word. Knowing God begins with this event. Illumination. Knowing God rests finally, not on the data that we've accumulated or on our ability to convince ourselves or anyone else that we're on good grounds in believing what we do. Though, of course, we do study, we do reflect, we must be able to offer a reason for the hope that lies within us. But knowing God, realizing the reality and relevance of his presence firsthand, it doesn't depend on how clever you are or how articulate you are. It depends on the work of God, which Christians call illumination. As we dig into our gospel passage from Luke chapter 24, I want to focus on this theme of illumination, and I want to ask three questions. What is it not? What is it? How do you get it? Okay, illumination. We'll get to defining illumination in a moment, but first, let's just ask what the setting of our gospel passage here in Luke 24 tells us about what illumination is not. In the first place, illumination is not the same as revelation, what we were talking about right at the start of this sermon, what I was talking to you about on Easter Sunday. Remember, revelation is the complex of ways in which God has revealed himself, making objectively available to us what would otherwise have been hidden to our understanding. Illumination is not that. Whatever illumination is, it doesn't lead to new uh, revelation out there. No, illumination flows from it. Look at um, Luke 24, chapter, uh, uh, verse 13. That very day, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. This remembers the same day as Jesus' resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. His sufferings and death are still freshly imprinted on their imaginations. So they're not expecting what happens in verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now remember, Luke is intending to tell us a historical narrative here. Emmaus, it's a historical place. You could put a red pin in it on a map. Now, this isn't the only time that disciples are said not to be able to recognize Jesus. Mary Magdalene mistook Jesus for a gardener. Something similar is happening here. The point isn't that the disciples are dejected and not paying close enough attention to realize that Jesus has just sidled up beside them. They were kept from recognizing him. Kept from seeing who Jesus is. The point is that recognizing the glory of Jesus, it isn't a result of human cleverness or uh, resourcefulness. Recognizing Jesus requires that the one who kept the disciples from seeing him turn and enable them to see him. They must be divinely enabled to see Jesus. Now to be sure, these two disciples, they think very highly of Jesus. When this stranger comes and asks, 
what it is they're so busy talking about. This guy Cleopas responds with disbelief in verse 18. The very first word in the Greek is you. Are you the only guy in the dark around here? Don't you know what's been going on in Jerusalem? They go on to tell the stranger all about the high hopes they had for Jesus. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. Perhaps the prophet promised in our reading from Deuteronomy, which Nathan read to us, Moses there, promising a coming prophet like him. That's a great promise that rings throughout the Old Testament and finds expression and fulfillment in the New Testament. Maybe this Jesus, we thought he was this prophet, who would lead God's people into a new era. But those hopes had been dashed, the disciples explained, when Jesus met his demise on the cross. Their disappointment is palpable in verse 21. But we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. See, what's remarkable, what I want to underline here, is that Cleopas and his friend, they're disciples. They have all the facts. The data is in. They have revelation. They have the promises of Scripture, as their shout-out to Deuteronomy chapter 18 shows. They have the life and ministry of Jesus. They're among his followers. They have the cross, an event for which Jesus had prepared his disciples. And as verses 22 to 24 then show us, they even had the empty tomb. Whatever the disciples are lacking, it's not revelation. It's not an objective basis for their belief. They've got the work of God out there. They're missing the work of God in here. So illumination is not revelation. But equally, that doesn't mean that illumination is only for the spiritually elite. Illumination is not about having a big spiritual ego. Considering that the church around the world today numbers something like 2.18 billion people, you and I are very small fish in a very big pond. I'm not standing here encouraging spiritual elitism. Illumination is the starting point of the Christian faith. It doesn't belong solely to a few spiritual elite. Okay, so what illumination is not? What is it? It's not the work of God out there in Revelation. No, illumination is, here's my definition, the ongoing work of God the Holy Spirit in here, in the heart, enabling me to grasp and to love God as he reveals himself to me in Holy Scripture. That's a big definition. Let's break it down into a few bite-sized pieces. First, illumination is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of our hearts. When the Apostle Paul prayed for the churches that he'd been out there planting, he always prayed that the Spirit would grant God's people a deeper love for, comprehension of, obedience to, and confidence in the Word of God. And this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays it this way in Ephesians 1, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That the same spirit who's behind revelation, behind the, the, his objective work in the world, 
would also fill you up, work in you, give you eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to know and love, and to receive the word of the Lord. Illumination is the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And remember that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a him, not an it. The Spirit is not this electrical, impersonal force field. He's a person of the triune God. And the illumination that he gives is, consequently, personal. It's not an invitation to spiritual escapism. The Spirit doesn't work in you to pull you away from your families, to drag you into your closet and to keep you there, where he can take you away from your obligations to your kids or your spouse or your friends or whatever. Illumination is a personal act of God drawing you near to him in order that he might, in the truest and fullest and realest way, draw you near to others. Now, the Spirit's work of illumination takes place secondly here, in the heart. What does the stranger put his finger on in verse 25? O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Our problem in knowing God is not a deficit in what God has given to us by which we can know Him. We have all the data. The problem lies in our heart. We are slow of heart to believe God. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are by nature darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in us due to our hardness of heart. The intellectual problems come from a heart problem. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Now, to what end? Here's the third point of the definition. Illumination is the work of the Spirit in the heart, but to what end? To the end that I might love the God who reveals himself to me in Scripture. My point very simply is this. The work of the Spirit is inseparable from the Bible. You see that very clearly in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the stranger interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to understand when scripture is read or spoken. It's not that we instantly understand that we read. It's not that we instantly become competent readers of the Bible. Peter, look, listen to what Peter says. In the very same breath, that he identifies the writings of Paul as Scripture. If you want to see that at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Peter identifies the writings of Paul as Scripture. In the very same breath, he says, man, that guy writes some confusing stuff. It can be hard to understand what Paul writes, says Peter. It can be difficult to understand everything in the Scripture. So it's not that illumination makes us instantly brilliant, competent readers of the Bible. And it's not that in understanding Scripture, we come to have authority over it either. We all stand in need of ongoing correction by the Word. We're all in the domain of the Word, subject to it, not the other way around. 
What illumination does is it enables us to love the command of God, to find freedom in serving him in whose service is perfect freedom, as the collect says. This leads to a final element of our definition of illumination. This is a really key point. Illumination is an ongoing work. If you're not a Christian, illumination is the beginning of faith. And if you are a Christian, illumination is the means by which the Spirit sustains your faith. No matter who you are, then, whether you're a believer or not, to know God, we rely on the illuminating work of the Spirit. That's the starting point. And that's what sustains us. The condition is no different for Christians than it is for non-Christians. Now this makes the answer to our third big question. How do you get illumination? Quite simple. Because it's the same. You see, whether you're a Christian or not, you pray for the Spirit to open your eyes that you may behold wondrous things in His Word. Now you may have noticed that in uh, our passage from Luke chapter 24, Jesus reveals himself in the Word. And that revelation or that uh, illumination, right, culminates in the breaking of bread. And I think what we're seeing here is, how do you get it? A full answer would have to be Word and sacrament. You get it by worshiping the Lord in the presence of his people. Being trained as someone who loves others, who can offer love, who can receive it. But I want to focus because I think it's the most practical way that you can work out this passage this week while we're socially distanced and not able to come to the table. I want to focus on how we engage with the word of God. So I'm going to stop short of talking about the breaking of bread. How do you get it? You pray for the Spirit to open your heart as you read Scripture so that you might see Jesus. This morning, if you're a Christian and if you're waking up to the fact that Jesus seems like a stranger to you, like you don't know him anymore, Return to the Word. Read it. Meditate on it. Chew it. Gnaw it like a dog gnaws a bone. Come back. Pick it up again. You know those sleepy mornings when you wake up and you didn't quite get enough sleep and you've got eyelashes that you can't quite get out of the way. And you feel for hours and hours like you're looking through your eyelashes out into the world. Like you've got sleep caught in your eye. It makes the world blurry. Is Jesus blurry to you this morning? Ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to wipe the sleep from the eyes of your heart. Now, here's how I'd encourage you to do that. If you need to ask the Spirit to come and to wipe the sleep from your heart, spend this entire week slowly reading Psalm 119. 
It has 22 sections. Divide that in three. Pray a section, morning, noon, and night. In the morning, read a section. And if you have a journal, meditate on the passage by asking a few simple questions. Now, what I'm about to do is to give you a very clear application, okay? A way that you can ask the Spirit to come and reveal Christ to you. As you read that section of Psalm 119, ask these four questions. First, what does this show me about God? What does it reveal of His nature, of His will, of His works, of His ways? Secondly, ask, what does this passage tell me about me, about humanity? The French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that humanity is the glory and the garbage of the universe. So what does this passage tell me about my glory? What does it tell me about my garbage? Thirdly, what command am I given to follow? How do I finish? Uh, How do I find myself being challenged or unsettled? In what ways am I being invited to work out my salvation? Not to earn, but to express my salvation in obedience, love, and prayer. And then finally, what promise am I being given to claim? How do I find myself being comforted and consoled? What are the promises of God that the Holy Spirit is enabling me to savor? And then bridge from the study of Scripture into prayer. Talk with God and ask Him, God, what are you showing me in your word this morning? What are you putting in bold print? And then ask yourself, what's been happening in my life over this past day or over the previous week that God might be wanting to teach me something about? And then finally, ask yourself, how would my Christian life look different if this passage were excised from Scripture? If this weren't here, how would my life look any different? When Christians talk about illumination, it's not spiritual elitism. It's simply the Bible's promise that the Spirit who inspired the Scripture will enable us to understand it. And the reason it's not spiritual elitism is because it's tied to the Bible. But for that very reason, if a Christian is not in regular, intimate conversation with God in prayer over Scripture, then he or she is in danger of sliding down the slope of spiritual elitism and into moralism. This idea that I'm good with God because of my resources. Because you see, if we're claiming to have access to God, not on His terms, but on ours, not an engagement with Scripture, but through our own resources, then we have effectively become spiritual elitists. We're saying that the basis of our communion with God isn't what He's provided, but what we provide. That it's not what God brings to the table, it's what we bring to the table. This is why it's so important that illumination is an ongoing process in the Christian life. We are kept in faith. You are kept in faith in the same way as you came to faith at first by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. So whether you're on the fringes of faith or whether you just need the Holy Spirit to wipe the sleep from the eyes of your heart, open the scriptures, read them, chew them, savor them, tell God that the word seems closed to you and ask him to unfold it. Admit that you are in darkness and ask him to give you light. Admit that you are not so terribly clever after all. 
Ask for him to impart understanding to the simple. And then watch Jesus become clearer as the Spirit wipes the sleep from your eyes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.